Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. When a traveller in north-central Massachusetts takes the wrong fork at the junction of the Aylesbury Pike, just beyond Dean's Corners, he comes upon a lonely and curious country. The ground gets higher, and the briar-bordered stone walls press closer and closer against the ruts of the dusty, curving road. The trees of the frequent forest belt seem too large, and the wild weeds, brambles, and grasses attain a luxuriance not often found in settled regions. At the same time, the planted fields appear singularly few and barren, while the sparsely scattered houses wear a surprisingly uniform aspect of age, squalor, and dilapidation. Without knowing why, one hesitates to ask directions from the gnarled, solitary figures spied now and then on crumbling doorsteps or on the sloping, rock-strown meadows. Those figures are so silent and furtive that one feels somehow confronted by forbidden things with which it would be better to have nothing to do. When a rise in the road brings the mountains in view, above the deep woods, the feeling of strange uneasiness is increased. The summits are too rounded and symmetrical to give a sense of comfort and naturalness, and sometimes the sky silhouettes with a special clearness the queer circles of tall stone pillars with which most of them are crowned. Gorges and ravines of problematical depth intersect the way, and the crude wooden bridges always seem of dubious safety. When the road dips again, there are stretches of marshland that one instinctively dislikes, and indeed almost fears at evening, when unseen whippoorwills chatter and the fireflies come out in abnormal profusion to dance to the raucous, creepily insistent rhythms of stridently piping bullfrogs. The thin, shining line of the miskatonic saparichis has an oddly serpent-like suggestion, as it winds close to the feet of the domed hills among which it rises. As the hills draw nearer, one heeds their wooded sides more than their stone-crowned tops. Those sides loom up so darkly and precipitously, that one wishes they would keep their distance, but there is no road by which to escape them. Across a covered bridge, one sees a small village huddled between the stream and the vertical slope of Round Mountain, and wonders at the cluster of rotting gambrel roofs bespeaking an earlier architectural period than that of the neighbouring region. It is not reassuring to see, on a closer glance, that most of the houses are deserted and falling to ruin, and that the broken steepled church now harbours the one slovenly mercantile establishment of the hamlet. One dreads to trust the tenebrous tunnel of the bridge, yet there is no way to avoid it. Once across, it is hard to prevent the impression of a faint, malign odour about the village street, as of the massed mould and decay of centuries. It is always a relief to get clear of the place, and to follow the narrow road around the base of the hills and across the level country beyond, till it rejoins the Aylesbury Pike. Afterward, one sometimes learns that one has been through Dunwich.
It was with macabre curiosity that the travelling salesman, Richard Block, eventually passed through that malodorous place, spurred on as he was by the most unlikely of tales, related to him by the keeper of a quiet tavern nearby. Horror Babbles, the Dunwich Horror Thank you. What can I do for you, sir? Room and board, if you please. Room and board, eh? I'm sure that can be arranged. Perhaps a drink to wet your whistle? Ah, beer, please. Beer it is. Take a seat, sir. What brings you to these parts, sir? I'm a salesman. Footwear's my game. Footwear, eh? A lot of demand for footwear out here in the back country, is there, sir? I'm a little off the beaten track, I know. The driver said that I... Know little about it, sir. Can't interest you in a nice new pair of galoshes, then. I wouldn't have thought so, sir. What do you say, Larry? Oh, sir! There you go, sir. So, you're unfamiliar with Dumwich, then? Dumwich? Not too far from here, sir. Best avoided. Why's that? You wouldn't want to know, sir. Wouldn't I? No, sir. Would he, Larry? Oh, sir. I dare say you've misjudged me, bartender. How's that exactly? I reckon I'm partial to a good story. Really, sir? Really? How's about that, then? It just so happens that this is a particularly good yarn. A dreadful, fanciful one, but good nonetheless. Color me intrigued. Well, better hold on to your beer, sir. <laughs> Listen to that, sir. Mother Nature doesn't like this one. We'll need to start at the beginning. The very beginning. Not too tired, are you, sir? Nope. Good, 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 good. Let's see if we can paint a picture for you, Mr. Block. It's a pleasure, Mr. Block. The name's Lindsay. Now then. Outsiders such as yourself visit Dumwich as seldom as possible. And since a certain season of horror, the very season in which our story takes place, all the signboards pointing toward it have been taken down. Ah, uh, the scenery is more than commonly beautiful. Yet there is no influx of artists or summer tourists. Two centuries ago, when talk of witch blood, Satan worship, and strange forest presences was not laughed at, it was the custom to give reasons for avoiding the locality in our sensible age. 
Since the Dunwich Horror of 1928 was hushed up by those who had the towns and the world's welfare at heart, people shun it without knowing exactly why. Perhaps one reason, though it cannot apply to uninformed strangers such as yourself, is that the natives are now repellently decadent. No one, even those who have the facts concerning the recent horror, can say just what is the matter with Dumwich. Though old legends speak of unhallowed rites and conclaves of the Indians, amidst which they called forbidden shapes of shadow out of the great rounded hills, and made wild orgiastic prayers that were answered by loud crackings and rumblings from the ground below. Noises in the hills continue to be reported from year to year, and still form a puzzle to geologists and the like. Other traditions tell of foul odors near the hill-crowning circles of stone pillars, and of rushing airy presences to be heard faintly at certain hours from stated points at the bottom of the great ravines. While still others try to explain the Devil's Hop Yard, a bleak, blasted hillside where no tree, shrub, or grass blade will grow. Then, too, the natives are mortally afraid of the numerous whippoorwills which grow vocal on warm nights. It is vowed that the birds are psychopomps, guides of souls, lying in wait for the souls of the dying, and that they time their eerie cries in unison with the sufferer's struggling breath. If they can catch the fleeing soul when it leaves the body, they instantly flutter away, chittering in demoniac laughter. But if they fail, they subside gradually into a disappointed silence. It was in the township of Dunwich, in a large and partly inhabited farmhouse set against a hillside four miles from the village and a mile and a half from any other dwelling, that Wilbur Waitley was born. At, uh... When was it, Larry? Candlemas, sir! Ah, yes, of course. Candlemas. Sunday, the 2nd of February, 1913. The mother was one of the decadent Waitleys, a somewhat deformed, unattractive albino woman of 35, living with an aged and half-insane father about whom the most frightful tales of wizardry had been whispered in his youth. Lavinia Waitley had no known husband, but according to the custom of the region, made no attempt to disavow the child, concerning the other side of whose ancestry the country folk might, <laughs> and did, speculate as widely as they chose. On the contrary, she seemed strangely proud of the dark, goatish-looking infant who formed such a contrast to her own sickly and pink-eyed albinism, and was heard to mutter many curious prophecies about its unusual powers and tremendous future. Yeah, Lavinia was one who would be apt to mutter such things, for she was a lone creature given to wandering amidst thunderstorms in the hills and trying to read the great odorous books which her father had inherited through two centuries of Waitley's, and which were fast falling to pieces with age and wormholes. There was a hideous screaming on the night Wilbur was born, but no known doctor or midwife presided at his coming. Neighbors knew nothing of him till a week afterward, when old Waitley drove his sleigh through the snow into Dunwich Village and discoursed incoherently to the group of loungers at Osborne's general store. There seemed to be a change in the old man, 
an added element of furtiveness in the clouded brain which subtly transformed him from an object to a subject of fear, though he was not one to be perturbed by any common family event. Amidst it all, he showed some trace of the pride later noticed in his daughter, and what he said of the child's paternity was remembered by many of his hearers years afterward. Speak of the devil. George, what was it old Waitley said of Wilbur's father? I don't care what folks think, he said. If Lavany's boy looked like his pa, he wouldn't look like nothing you'd expect. Let me tell you something. Someday you folks will hear a child of Lavany's calling its father's name on the top of Sentinel Hill. Uh, beer, George? Aye. The only persons who saw Wilbur during the first month of his life were old Zechariah Waitley and Earl Sawyer's common-law wife, Mamie Bishop. Mamie's visit was frankly one of curiosity, and her subsequent tales did justice to her observations. But Zechariah came to lead a pair of Alderney cows, which old Waitley had bought of his son, Curtis. This marked the beginning of a course of cattle-buying on the part of small Wilbur's family, which ended only in 1928, when the Dunwich Horror came and went. Yet at no time did the ramshackle Waitley barn seem overcrowded with livestock. In the spring after Wilbur's birth, Lavinia resumed her customary rambles in the hills, bearing in her misproportioned arms the swarthy child. Public interest in the Waitleys subsided after most of the country folk had seen the baby, and no one bothered to comment on the swift development which that newcomer seemed every day to exhibit. Wilbur's growth was indeed phenomenal. Within three months of his birth, he had attained a size and muscular power not usually found in infants under a full year of age. His motions and even his vocal sounds showed a restraint and deliberateness highly peculiar in an infant. And no one was really unprepared when, at seven months, he began to walk unassisted. It was somewhat after this time, on Halloween, that a great blaze was seen at midnight on the top of Sentinel Hill, where the old table-like stone stands amidst its tumulus of ancient bones. Considerable talk was started, when Silas Bishop mentioned having seen the boy running sturdily up that hill ahead of his mother about an hour before the blaze was remarked. Silas was rounding up a stray heifer, but he nearly forgot his mission when he fleetingly spied the two figures in the dim light of his lantern. They darted almost noiselessly through the underbrush, and the astonished watcher seemed to think they were entirely unclothed. Afterward, he could not be sure about the boy who may have had some kind of a fringed belt and a pair of dark trunks or trousers on. Wilbur was never subsequently seen alive and conscious without complete and tightly buttoned attire, the disarrangement or threatened disarrangement of which always seemed to fill him with anger and alarm. The next January, gossips were mildly interested in the fact that Wilbur had commenced to talk, and at the age of only eleven months... The boy was not talkative, yet when he spoke, he seemed to reflect some elusive element wholly unpossessed by Damwich and its denizens. The strangeness did not reside in what he said, or even in the simple idioms he used, but seemed vaguely linked with his intonation or with the internal organs that produced the spoken sounds. His facial aspect, too, was 
remarkable for its maturity. For though he shared his mother's and grandfather's chinlessness, his firm and precociously shaped nose, united with the expression of his large, dark, almost Latin eyes, to give him an air of quasi-adulthood and well-nigh preternatural intelligence. He was, however, exceedingly ugly, despite his appearance of brilliancy. There being something almost goatish or animalistic about his thick lips, large poured, yellowish skin, coarse crinkly hair, and oddly elongated ears. He was soon disliked even more decidedly than his mother and grandsire, and all conjectures about him were spiced with references to the bygone magic of old Waitley, and how the hills once shook when he shrieked the dreadful name of Yagsathoth in the midst of a circle of stones with a great book open in his arms before him. Meanwhile, old Waitley continued to buy cattle without measurably increasing the size of his herd. He also cut timber and began to repair the unused parts of his house, a spacious, peaked-roofed affair whose rear end was buried entirely in the rocky hillside and whose three least-ruined ground-floor rooms had always been sufficient for himself and his daughter. Ah, there must have been prodigious reserves of strength in the old man to enable him to accomplish so much hard labor, and though he still babbled dementedly at times, his carpentry seemed to show the effects of sound calculation. It had already begun as soon as Wilbur was born, when one of the many tool sheds had been put suddenly in order, clapboarded, and fitted with a stout, fresh lock. In restoring the abandoned upper story of the house, he was a thorough craftsman. His mania showed itself only in his tight boarding up of all the windows in the reclaimed section, though many declared that it was a crazy thing to bother with the reclamation at all. Less inexplicable was his fitting up of another downstairs room for his new grandson, a room which several callers saw, though no one was ever admitted to the closely boarded upper story. This chamber he lined with tall, firm shelving, along which he began gradually to arrange, in apparently careful order, all the rotting ancient books and parts of books which, during his own day, had been heaped in odd corners of the various rooms. I made some use of them, he'd say, but the boy's fit to make better use of them. When Wilbur was a year and seven months old, his size and accomplishments were almost alarming. He had grown as large as a child of four, and was a fluent and incredibly intelligent talker. He ran freely about the fields and hills, and accompanied his mother on all her wanderings. At home he would pore diligently over the queer pictures and charts in his grandfather's books, while old Waitley would instruct and catechize him through long, hushed afternoons. By this time, the restoration of the house was finished and those who watched it wondered why one of the upper windows had been made into a solid plank door. It was a window in the rear of the east gable end, close against the hill, and no one could imagine why a cleated wooden runway was built up to it from the ground. About the period of this work's completion, people noticed that the old tool house, tightly locked and windowlessly clapboarded since Wilbur's birth, had been abandoned again. The door swung listlessly open, and when Earl Sawyer once stepped within after a cattle-selling call on Old Waitley, 
he was quite discomposed by the singular odor he encountered. Such a stench, he averred, as he had never before smelt in all his life, except near the Indian circles on the hills, and which could not come from anything sane or of this earth. Wilbur was growing up uncannily, so that he looked like a boy of ten as he entered his fourth year. <laughs> he read avidly by himself now, but talked much less than formerly. A subtle taciturnity was absorbing him, and for the first time people began to speak specifically of the dawning look of evil in his goatish face. He would sometimes mutter an unfamiliar jargon, and chant in bizarre rhythms which chilled the listener with a sense of unexplainable terror. The few callers at the house would often find Lavinia alone on the ground floor, while odd cries and footsteps resounded in the boarded-up second story. She would never tell what her father and the boy were doing up there, though once she turned pale and displayed an abnormal degree of fear when a jocose fish peddler tried the locked door leading to the stairway. That peddler told the store loungers at Dunwich Village that he thought he heard a horse stamping on that floor above. Another beer, Mr. Block? Indeed. For a decade, the annals of the Whiteleys sunk indistinguishably into the general life of a morbid community, used to their queer ways and hardened to their maeve and all hallows orgies. Twice a year, they would light fires on the top of Sentinel Hill, at which times the mountain rumblings would recur with greater and greater violence, while at all seasons there were strange doings at the lonely farmhouse. <laughs> Believe me. In the course of time, callers professed to hear sounds in the sealed upper story even when all the family were downstairs. And they wondered how swiftly or how lingeringly a cow or bullock was usually sacrificed. Ah, uh, well, about 1923, when Wilbur was a boy of ten, whose mind, voice, stature, and bearded face gave all the impressions of maturity, a second great siege of carpentry went on at the old house. It was all inside the sealed upper part, and from bits of discarded lumber, people concluded that the youth and his grandfather had knocked out all the partitions and even removed the attic floor, leaving only one vast open void between the ground story and the peaked roof. They had torn down the great central chimney, too, and fitted the rusty range with a flimsy outside tin stovepipe. In the spring after this event, Old Waitley noticed the growing number of whippoorwills that would come out of Cold Spring Glen to chirp under his window at night. He seemed to regard the circumstance as one of great significance, and told the loungers at Osborne's that he thought his time had almost come. George here was there that night. Aye, they whistle in tune with my breathing now, he said, and I guess they're getting ready to catch my soul. They know it's going out, and don't calculate to miss it. You'll know, boys, after I'm gone, whether they get me or not. If they do, They'll keep up a singing and laughing till break of day. If they don't, they'll kind of quiet down like. I expect them and the souls they hunt for have some pretty tough tussles sometimes. On Lammas night, 1924, Dr. Houghton of Aylesbury was hastily summoned by Wilbur, 
who had lashed his one remaining horse through the darkness and telephoned from Osborne's in the village. He found old Waitley in a very grave state, with a cardiac action and labored breathing that told of an end not far off. The albino daughter and oddly bearded grandson stood by the bedside, whilst from the vacant abyss overhead there came a disquieting suggestion of rhythmical surging or lapping as of the waves on some level beach. The doctor, though, was chiefly disturbed by the chattering nightbirds outside, a seemingly limitless legion of whippoorwills that cried their endless message in repetitions timed diabolically to the wheezing gasps of the dying man. Good night, Mary. Aye, Lynn. Good night. Old Waitley gained consciousness and interrupted his wheezing to choke out a few words to his grandson. George? More space, Willie. More space soon. You grows, and that grows faster. It'll be ready to serve you soon, boy. Open up the gates to Yogg-Sothoth with the long chant that you'll find on page something or other of the complete edition, and then put a match to the prison. Fire from Earth can't burn it anyhow. He was obviously quite mad. Feed it regular, Willie, and mind the quantity, but don't let it grow too fast for the place, for if it busts quarters or gets out before you opens to Yogg-Sothoth, it's all over and no use. Only them from beyond can make it multiply and work. Only them, the old ones, as wants to come back. But speech gave place to gasps again, and Lavinia screamed at the way the whippoorwills followed the change. It was the same for more than an hour, when the final throaty rattle came. Lavinia sobbed, but Wilbur only chuckled, whilst the hill noises rumbled faintly. They didn't get him, Wilbur muttered. The whippoorwills? Aye. Wilbur was by this time a scholar of really tremendous knowledge in his, you know, one-sided way, and was quietly known by correspondence to many librarians in distant places where rare and forbidden books of old days are kept. He was more and more hated and dreaded around Dunwich because of certain youthful disappearances which suspicion laid vaguely at his door. He was now tremendously mature of aspect, and his height, having reached the normal adult limit, seemed inclined to wax beyond that figure. In 1925, when a scholarly correspondent from Miskatonic University called upon him one day and departed pale and puzzled, he was fully six and three-quarters feet tall. Through all the years, Wilbur had treated his half-deformed albino mother with a growing contempt, finally forbidding her to go to the hills with him on May Eve and Hallow Mass. And in 1926, the poor creature complained to Mamie Bishop of being afraid of him. That Halloween, the hill noises sounded louder than ever, and fire burned on Sentinel Hill as usual but people paid more attention to the rhythmical screaming of vast flocks of unnaturally belated whippoorwills which seemed to be assembled near the unlighted Waitley farmhouse. After midnight, their shrill notes burst into a kind of pandemoniac cacination which filled all the countryside. Not until dawn did they finally quiet down. Then they vanished, hurrying southward, where they were fully a month overdue. What this meant, 
No one could quite be certain till later. None of the country folk seemed to have died, but poor Lavinia Waitley, the twisted albino, was never seen again. In the summer of 1927, Wilbur repaired two sheds in the farmyard and began moving his books and effects out to them. Soon afterward, Earl Sawyer told the loungers at Osborne's that more carpentry was going on in the Waitley farmhouse. Wilbur was closing all the doors and windows on the ground floor and seemed to be taking out partitions, as he and his grandfather had done upstairs four years before. He was living in one of the sheds, and Sawyer thought he seemed unusually worried and tremulous. People generally suspected him of knowing something about his mother's disappearance, and very few ever approached his neighborhood now. His height had increased to more than seven feet and showed no signs of ceasing its development. Now then, Mr. Block, how's about another beer? Peanuts, George? Aye. Mr. Block? Ah, oh, why not? Larry? Aye, sir. How's about Dunwich, then, Mr. Block? Well, you got me hooked, bartender. Then listen. The following winter saw Wilbur's first trip outside the Dunwich region. It is said that correspondence with the Widener Library at Harvard, the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, the British Museum, the University of Buenos Aires, and the Library of Miskatonic University of Arkham had failed to get him the loan of a book he desperately wanted. So at length he set out in person, shabby, dirty, bearded, and uncouth of dialect, to consult the copy at Miskatonic, which was the nearest to him geographically. Almost eight feet tall and carrying a cheap new suitcase from Osborne's general store, this dark and goatish gargoyle appeared one day in Arkham in quest of the dreaded volume kept under lock and key at the college library, the hideous Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul El-Hazred in Olaus Wormius's Latin version, as printed in Spain in the 17th century. Are you familiar with it, sir? Uh, can't say I am, bartender. Better pay close attention, then. Wilbur had never seen a city before, but had no thought save to find his way to the university grounds, where, it is said, he passed heedlessly by the great white-fanged watchdog that barked with unnatural fury and enmity and tugged frantically at its stout chain. Wilbur had with him the priceless but imperfect copy of Dr. D's English version of the Necronomicon, which his grandfather had bequeathed him. And upon receiving access to the Latin copy, he at once began to collate the two texts with the aim of discovering a certain passage which was missing from his own defective volume. This much he could not civilly refrain from telling the librarian. The erudite Henry Armitage who had once called at the farm back in 1925, and who now politely plied him with questions. He was looking, he had to admit, for a kind of formula or incantation containing the frightful name Yag-Sathoth, and it puzzled him to find discrepancies, duplications, and ambiguities which made the matter of determination far from easy. As he copied the formula he finally chose, Dr. Armitage looked involuntarily over his shoulder at the open pages, the left-hand one of which, in the Latin version, contained such monstrous threats to the peace and 
sanity of the world. Just picture the scene. The queer stranger and the learned librarian. The former bent over a book of hideous antiquity. The latter mentally translating the words upon its open pages. Nor is it to be thought that man is either the oldest or the last of Earth's masters, or that the common bulk of life and substance walks alone. The old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones shall be. Not in the spaces we know, but between them, they walk serene and primal, undimensioned to us unseen. Yogg-Sothoth knows the gate. Yogg-Sothoth is the gate. Yogg-Sothoth is the key and guardian of the gate. Past, present, future, all are one in Yogg-Sothoth. He knows where the old ones broke through of old, and where they shall break through again. He knows where they have trod Earth's fields, and where they still tread them, and why no one can behold them as they tread. By their smell can men sometimes know them near, but of their semblance can no man know, saving only in the features of those they have begotten on mankind. And of those are there many sorts, differing in likeness from man's truest eidolon to that shape without sight or substance, which is them. They walk unseen and foul in lonely places where the words have been spoken and the rites howled through at their season. The wind gibbers with their voices, and the earth mutters with their consciousness. They bend the forest and crush the city, yet may not forest or city behold the hand that smites. Kadath in the cold waste hath known them, and what man knows Kadath? The ice desert of the south and the sunken isles of ocean hold stones whereon their seal is engraven, but who hath seen the deep frozen city? or the sealed tower long garlanded with seaweed and barnacles. Great Cthulhu is their cousin, yet can he spy them only dimly. Yah, Shabnagorath, as a foulness shall ye know them. Their hand is at your throats, yet ye see them not, and their habitation is even one with your guarded threshold. Yogsothoth is the key to the gate, whereby the spheres meet. Man rules now, where they ruled once. They shall soon rule where man rules now. After summer is winter, and after winter, summer. They wait patient and potent, for here shall they reign again. Dr. Armitage, associating what he was reading with what he'd heard of Dunwich and its brooding presences, and of Wilbur Waitley and his dim, hideous aura that stretched from a dubious birth to a cloud of probable matricide, felt a wave of fright as tangible as a draft of the tomb's cold clamminess. The bent, goatish giant before him seemed like the spawn of another planet or dimension, like something only partly of mankind, and linked to black gulfs of essence and entity that stretch like titan phantasms beyond all spheres of force and matter space, and time. Presently, Wilbur raised his head and began speaking in that strange, resonant fashion which hinted at sound-producing organs unlike the run of mankind's. George, what was it he said to Armitage? 
Mr. Armitage, he said, I calculate I've got to take that book home. There are things in it I've got to try under certain conditions that I can't get here, and it would be a mortal sin to let a red tape rule hold me up. Let me take it along, sir, and I'll swear they won't nobody know the difference. I don't need to tell you I'll take good care of it. It wasn't me that put this decopy in the shape it is. Armitage, half ready to tell him he might make a copy of what parts he needed, thought suddenly of the possible consequences and checked himself. There was too much responsibility in giving such a being the key to such blasphemous outer spheres. Waitley saw how things stood and tried to answer lightly. Well, all right, if you feel that way about it. Maybe Harvard won't be so fussy as you be. And with that, Wilbur rose and strode out of the building. Armitage heard the savage yelping of the great watchdog and studied Waitley's gorilla-like lope as he crossed the bit of campus visible from the window. He thought of the wild tales he had heard and recalled the old Sunday stories in the advertiser. These things and the lore he had picked up from Dunwich rustics and villagers during his one visit there. Unseen things not of earth, or at least not of tri-dimensional earth, rushed fetid and horrible through New England's glens, and brooded obscenely on the mountaintops. Of this he had long felt certain. Now he seemed to sense the close presence of some terrible part of the intruding horror, and to glimpse a hellish advance in the black dominion of the ancient and once passive nightmare. He locked away the Necronomicon with a shudder of disgust, but the room still reeked with an unholy and unidentifiable stench. As a foulness shall ye know them, he quoted. Yes, the odor was the same as that which had sickened him at the Waitley farmhouse less than three years before. He thought of Wilbur, goatish and ominous once again and laughed mockingly at the village rumors of his parentage. <laughs> In breeding? <laughs> great God, what simpletons. <laughs> Show them Arthur Macken's great God pan, and they'll think it a common downwards scandal. <laughs> but what thing, what cursed shapeless influence on or off this three-dimensioned earth was Wilbur Wakeley's father, born on Candlemas, nine months after May Eve of 1912. And the talk about the queer earth noises reached clear to Arkham. What walked on the mountains that May night? What rude mass horror fastened itself on the world in half-human flesh and blood? During the ensuing weeks, Dr. Armitage set about to collect all possible data on Wilbur Waitley and the formless presences around Dunwich. He got in communication with Dr. Houghton of Aylesbury, who had attended Old Waitley in his last illness and found much to ponder over in the grandfather's last words as quoted by the physician. A visit to Dunwich Village failed to bring out much that was new, but a close survey of the Necronomicon, and those parts which Wilbur had sought so avidly, seemed to supply new and terrible clues to the nature, methods, and desires of the strange evil so vaguely threatening this planet. Talks with several students of archaic lore in Boston and letters to many others elsewhere gave him a growing amazement which passed slowly through varied degrees of alarm to a state of really acute spiritual fear. As the summer drew on, he felt dimly that something ought to be done about the 
lurking terrors of the upper Miskatonic Valley, and about the monstrous being known to the human world as Wilbur Waitley. Put another log on the fire for me, would you, Larry? Aye. Feeling the chill, Mr. Block? Aye, bartender. Blowing off of those barren hills, sir. Remember what I said about Mother Nature? Can I get you anything else, Joe? Nothing else for me, Lynn. Sure is a quiet place you've got here, bartender. That's just how we like it, sir. Right, George? Aye. Now then, the Dumwich Horror itself came between Lammas and the Equinox in 1928, and Dr. Armitage was among those who witnessed its monstrous prologue. He had heard, meanwhile, of Whiteley's grotesque trip to Cambridge, and of his frantic efforts to borrow or copy from the Necronomicon at the Widener Library. Those efforts had been in vain, since Armitage had issued warnings of the keenest intensity to all librarians having charge of the dreaded volume. Wilbur had been shockingly nervous at Cambridge, anxious for the book, yet almost equally anxious to get home again, as if he feared the results of being away long. Early in August, a half-expected outcome developed, and in the small hours of the third, Dr. Armitage was awakened suddenly by the wild, fierce cries of the savage watchdog on the college campus. Deep and terrible, the snarling, half-mad growls and barks continued, always in mounting volume, but with hideously significant pauses. Then there rang out a scream from a wholly different throat, such a scream as roused half the sleepers of Arkham, and haunted their dreams ever afterward. Such a scream as could come from no being born of Earth, or holy of Earth. What's going on here? I don't know. I have no clue. Professor Rice, Dr. Morgan, follow me. What on earth is that frightful stench? Pay it no mind, Warren. I'm staying right here, Henry. My God. What... what is it? Henry, don't get too close to it. The dog has had its way with it, but it, it's, it's still alive. Watch yourself, Henry. What in the world is it, Henry? Can you describe it? I'll try, Frank. It's huge, some nine feet tall. Would it be outrageous to say that it has a look of the Waitleys about it? It's semi-anthropomorphic, though its chest has the leathery, reticulated hide of a crocodile or alligator. The back is spotted with yellow and black, and dimly suggests the squamous covering of certain snakes. Below the waist, though, what can I say? Oh. Uh, the skin is thickly covered with coarse black fur, and from the abdomen a score of long greenish-gray tentacles with red-sucking mouths are protruding limply. Oh, their arrangement is odd, and seems to follow the symmetries of some cosmic geometry unknown to Earth or the solar system. Christ. On each of the hips, deep-set in a kind of pinkish ciliated orbit, is what seems to be a rudimentary eye, whilst in lieu of a tail there depends a kind of trunk or 
feeler with purple annular markings, and with many evidences of being an undeveloped mouth or throat. For the love of all things holy. The limbs, save for their black fur, roughly resemble the hind legs of prehistoric Earth's giant saurians, and terminate in ridgy veined pads that are neither hooves nor claws. As it breathes, its tail and tentacles rhythmically change color, as if from some circulatory cause normal to the non-human side of its ancestry. In the tentacles, this is observable as a deepening of the greenish tinge, whilst in the tail it is manifest as a yellowish appearance which alternates with a sickly greyish-white in the spaces between the purple rings. Oh, of genuine blood there is none, only the fetid greenish-yellow ichor which is trickling along the floor. Wait, it's trying to speak. <laughs> The mumblings of the abhorrent thing trailed off into nothingness. Then came a halt in the gasping, and the dog raised its head in a long, lugubrious howl. A change came over the yellow, goatish face of the prostrate thing, and the great black eyes fell in appallingly. All at once, the dog started up abruptly, gave a frightened bark, and leaped nervously out of the window by which it had entered. Meanwhile, frightful changes were taking place on the floor. One need not describe the kind and rate of shrinkage and disintegration that occurred before the eyes of Dr. Armitage and Professor Rice, but it is permissible to say that Aside from the external appearance of face and hands, the really human element in Wilbur Whiteley must have been very small. When the medical examiner came, there was only a sticky, whitish mass on the painted boards, and the monstrous odor had nearly disappeared. Apparently Whiteley had had no skull or bony skeleton, at least in any true or stable sense. He had taken somewhat after his unknown father. Man, whiskey bartender, if you please. Certainly, sir. Another beer, George? Aye. Yet all this was only the prologue of the actual Dunwich Horror. Formalities were gone through by bewildered officials, abnormal details were duly kept from press and public, and men were sent to Dunwich and Aylesbury to look up property and notify any who might be heirs of the late Wilbur Whateley. They found the countryside in great agitation, both because of the growing rumblings beneath the domed hills and because of the unwanted stench and the surging lapping sounds which came increasingly from the great empty shell formed by Whateley's boarded-up farmhouse. Earl Sawyer, who tended the horse and cattle during Wilbur's absence, had developed a woefully acute case of nerves. The officials devised excuses not to enter the noisome boarded place, and were glad to confine their survey of the deceased's living quarters, the newly mended sheds, to a single visit. An almost interminable manuscript in strange characters, written in a huge ledger, 
and adjudged a sort of diary because of the spacing and the variations in ink and penmanship presented a baffling puzzle to those who found it on the old bureau which served as its owner's desk. After a week of debate, it was sent to Miskatonic University, together with the deceased's collection of strange books for study and possible translation. But even the best linguists soon saw that it was not likely to be unriddled with ease. It was in the dark of September 9th that the horror broke loose. The hill noises had been very pronounced during the evening, and dogs barked frantically all night. Early risers on the 10th noticed a peculiar stench in the air. About seven o'clock, Luther Brown, the hired boy at George Corey's, between Cold Spring Glen and the village, rushed frenziedly back from his morning trip to Ten Acre Meadow with the cows. He was almost convulsed with fright as he stumbled into the kitchen, and in the yard outside the no less frightened herd were pawing and lowing pitifully, having followed the boy back in the panic they shared with him. Between gasps, Luther tried to stammer out his tale to Mrs. Corey, describing giant footprints and appalling odors. Mrs. Corey, unable to extract more information, began telephoning the neighbors, thus starting on its rounds the overture of panic that heralded the major terrors. When she got Sally Sawyer, housekeeper at Seth Bishop's, the nearest place to Waitley's, it became her turn to listen instead of transmit. For Sally's boy, Chauncey, who slept poorly, had been up on the hill toward Waitley's and had dashed back in terror after one look at the place and at the pasturage where Mr. Bishop's cows had been left out all night. Old Wakeley's house is all blowed up, Chauncey told Sally, with the timbers scattered round like there'd been dynamite inside. Awful marks in the yard, too. Great round marks. And the whole place is sticky with tar-like stuff that smells awful. Half of Seth's cows are clean gone, and half of them that's left are sucked dry of blood. By that noon... Fully three-quarters of the men and boys of Domwich were trooping over the roads and meadows between the new-made Waitley ruins and Cold Spring Glen, examining in horror the vast, monstrous prince, the maimed bishop cattle, the strange, noisome wreck of the farmhouse, and the bruised, matted vegetation of the fields and roadsides. Whatever had burst loose upon the world had assuredly gone down into the great sinister ravine for all the trees on the banks were bent and broken, and a great avenue had been gouged in the precipice-hanging underbrush. It was though a house, launched by an avalanche, had slid down through the tangled growths of the almost vertical slope. From below, no sound came, but only a distant, undefinable fetter, and it is not to be wondered at that the men preferred to stay on the edge and argue rather than descend and confront the unknown Cyclopean horror in its lair. Three dogs that were with the party had barked furiously at first, but seemed cowed and reluctant when near the glen. Well, that night everyone went home, and every house and barn was barricaded as stoutly as possible. Needless to say, no cattle were allowed to remain in open pasturage. About two in the morning... A frightful stench and the savage barking of the dogs awakened the household at Elmer Fry's on the eastern edge of Cold Spring Glen, and all agreed that they could hear a sort of 
muffled swishing or lapping sound from somewhere outside. Mrs. Fry proposed telephoning the neighbors, and Elmer was about to agree when the noise of splintering wood burst in upon their deliberations. It came, apparently, from the barn, and was quickly followed by a hideous screaming and stamping amongst the cattle. The dogs slavered and crouched close to the feet of their fear-numbed family. Fry lit a lantern through force of habit, but knew that it would be death to go out into that black farmyard. Uh, going to wait out the storm, Joe? I, I'll have a brandy. Coming right up. The next day, all the countryside was in a panic. Two titan swaths of destruction stretched from the glen to the Fry farmyard. Monstrous prints covered the bare patches of ground, and one side of the old red barn had completely caved in. Of the cattle, only a quarter could be found and identified. Some of these were in curious fragments, and all that survived had to be shot. Earl Sawyer suggested that help be asked from Aylesbury or Arkham, but others maintained it would be of no use. Darkness fell upon a stricken countryside too passive to organize for real defense. In a few cases, closely related families would band together and watch in the gloom under one roof, but in general there was only a repetition of the barricading of the night before, and a futile, ineffective gesture of loading muskets and setting pitchforks handily about. Nothing, however, occurred, except some hill noises. And when the day came, there were many who hoped that the new horror had gone as swiftly as it had come. When night came again, the barricading was repeated, though there was less huddling together of families. In the morning, both the Fry and the Seth Bishop households reported excitement among the dogs, and vague sounds and stenches from afar, while early explorers noted with horror a fresh set of the monstrous tracks in the road skirting Sentinel Hill. As before, the sides of the road showed a bruising, indicative of the blasphemously stupendous bulk of the horror. Whilst the confirmation of the track seemed to argue a passage in two directions, as if the moving mountain had come from Cold Spring Glen and returned to it along the same path. At the base of the hill, a thirty-foot swath of crushed rubbery saplings led steeply upward, and the seekers gasped when they saw that even the most perpendicular places did not deflect the inexorable trail. Whatever the horror was, it could scale a sheer stony cliff of almost complete verticality, and as the investigators climbed around to the hill's summit by safer routes, they saw that the trail ended, or rather reversed, there. It was there that the Waitleys used to build their hellish fires and chant their hellish rituals by the table-like stone on Maeve and Hallowmass. Now that very stone formed the center of a vast space thrashed around by the mountainous horror, whilst upon its slightly concave surface was a thick and fetid deposit of the same tarry stickiness observed on the floor of the ruined Waitley farmhouse when the horror escaped. Men looked at one another and muttered. Then they looked down the hill. Apparently, the horror descended by a route 
much the same as that of its ascent. To speculate was futile. Reason, logic, and normal ideas of motivation stood confounded. Thursday night began much like the others, but it ended less happily. The whippoorwills in the glen had screamed with such unusual persistence that many could not sleep, and about 3 a.m., all the party telephones rang tremulously. Those who took down their receivers heard a fright-mad voice shriek out, Help! Oh my God! Some thought a crashing sound followed the breaking off of the exclamation. There was nothing more. No one dared do anything. No one knew till morning whence the call came. Then those who had heard it called everyone on the line and found that only the Fries did not reply. The truth appeared an hour later, when a hastily assembled group of armed men trudged out to the Fry place at the head of the glen. It was horrible, yet hardly a surprise. There were more swaths and monstrous prints, but there was no longer any house. It had caved in like an eggshell, and amongst the ruins nothing living or dead could be discovered. Only a stench and a tarry stickiness. The Elmer Fries had been erased from Dumwich. Might I propose another round of drinks at this interval, gentlemen? Aye. Aye. Whoa! Let's try that again. Now then, back to the story. A quieter, yet even more spiritually poignant phase of the horror had been blackly unwinding itself behind the closed door of a shelf-lined room in Arkham. The curious manuscript record, or diary of Wilbur Waitley, delivered to Miskatonic University for translation, had caused much worry and bafflement among the experts in languages both ancient and modern. Its very alphabet, notwithstanding a general resemblance to the heavily shaded Arabic used in Mesopotamia, being absolutely unknown to any available authority. The final conclusion of the linguists was that the text represented an artificial alphabet, giving the effect of a cipher, though none of the usual methods of cryptographic solution seemed to furnish any clue, even when applied on the basis of every tongue the writer might conceivably have used. The ancient books taken from Waitley's quarters, while absorbingly interesting and in several cases promising to open up new and terrible lines of research among philosophers and men of science were of no assistance whatever in this matter. One of them, a heavy tome with an iron clasp, was in another unknown alphabet, this one of a very different cast, and resembling Sanskrit more than anything else. The old ledger was at length given wholly into the charge of Dr. Armitage, both because of his peculiar interest in the Waitley matter and because of his wide linguistic learning and skill in the mystical formulae of antiquity and the Middle Ages. Armitage had an idea that the alphabet might be something esoterically used by certain forbidden cults which have come down from old times, and which have inherited many forms and traditions from the wizards of the Saracenic world. That question, however, he did not deem vital, 
Since it would be unnecessary to know the origin of the symbols if, as he suspected, they were used as a cipher in a modern language. It was his belief that, considering the great amount of text involved, the writer would scarcely have wished the trouble of using another speech than his own, save perhaps in certain special formulae and incantations. Accordingly, he attacked the manuscript with the preliminary assumption that the bulk of it was in English. On the evening of September 2nd, having concluded that the text was indeed in English, Dr. Armitage read for the first time a continuous passage of Wilbur Whiteley's Annals. It was in truth a diary, as all had thought, and it was couched in a style clearly showing the mixed occult erudition and general illiteracy of the strange being who wrote it. Morning found Dr. Armitage in a cold sweat of terror and a frenzy of wakeful concentration. He had not left the manuscript all night, but sat at his table under the electric light, turning page after page with shaking hands as fast as he could decipher the cryptic text. He had nervously telephoned his wife he would not be home, and when she brought him a breakfast from the house, he could scarcely dispose of a mouthful. All that day he read on, now and then halted maddeningly as a reapplication of the complex key became necessary. Lunch and dinner were brought him, but he ate only the smallest fraction of either. Toward the middle of the next night, he drowsed off in his chair, but soon woke out of a tangle of nightmares, almost as hideous as the truths and menaces to man's existence that he had uncovered. As twilight fell on September 6th, he finished his terrible perusal and sank back exhausted. His wife, bringing his dinner, found him in a half-comatose state, but he was conscious enough to warn her off with a sharp cry when he saw her eyes wander toward the notes he had taken. Weakly rising, he gathered up the scribbled papers and sealed them all in a great envelope, which he immediately placed in his inside coat pocket. He had sufficient strength to get home, but was so clearly in need of medical aid that Dr. Hartwell was summoned at once. As the doctor put him to bed, he could only mutter over and over again, but what in God's name can we do? Stop them, stop them, he would shout. Those Winkleys meant to let them in, and the worst of all is left. Tell Rice and Morgan we must do something. It's a blind business, but I know how to make the powder. It hasn't been fed since the 2nd of August, when Wilbur came here to his death, and at that rate. He woke late Friday, clear of head, though sober, with a gnawing fear and tremendous sense of responsibility. Saturday afternoon, he felt able to go over to the library and summon Rice and Morgan for conference, and the rest of that day and evening, the three men tortured their brains in the wildest speculation in the most desperate debate. Oh, strange and terrible books were drawn from the stacked shelves and from secure places of storage, and diagrams and formulae were copied with feverish haste and in bewildering abundance. Of skepticism there was none. All three had seen the body of Wilbur Whateley as it lay on the floor in a room of that very building, and after that not one of them could feel even slightly inclined to treat the diary as a madman's raving. No, sir. All day Sunday, Armitage was busy comparing formulae and mixing chemicals obtained from the college laboratory. The more he reflected on the hellish diary, 
the more he was inclined to doubt the efficacy of any material agent in stamping out the entity which Wilbur Wakeley had left behind him. The earth-threatening entity which, unknown to him, was to burst forth in a few hours and become the Dunwich Horror. Shush! Listen! That's just Johnson, the Smith's guard dog. Yeah? Sounds like he's guarding all right. Maybe so, Mr. Block. Maybe so. You just drink your beer, sir. Leave Johnson to his garden. Well, anything you say, bartender? Friday morning, Armitage, Rice, and Morgan set out by Moda for Dunwich, arriving at the village about one in the afternoon. From the air of hushed fright at Osborne's store, they knew something hideous had happened and soon learned of the annihilation of the Elma Fry house and family. Throughout that afternoon, they rode around Dunwich, questioning the natives concerning all that had occurred, and seeing for themselves with rising pangs of horror the drear Fry ruins with their lingering traces of the tarry stickiness, the blasphemous tracks in the Fry yard, the wounded Seth Bishop cattle, and the enormous swaths of disturbed vegetation in various places. The trail up and down Sentinel Hill seemed to Armitage of almost cataclysmic significance, and he looked long at the sinister altar-like stone on the summit. At length, the visitors, apprised of a party of state police which had come from Aylesbury that morning, in response to the first telephone reports of the Fry tragedy, decided to seek out the officers and compare notes as far as practicable. This, however, they found more easily planned than performed, since no sign of the party could be found in any direction. There had been five of them in a car, but now the car stood empty near the ruins in the fry yard. The natives, all of whom had talked with the policemen, seemed at first as perplexed as Armitage and his companions. Then Sam Hutchins thought of something and turned pale, nudging Fred Farr and pointing to the dank, deep hollow that yawned close by. God, old Sam said, I told them not to go down into the glen, and I never thought nobody would do it with them tracks and that smell and the whippoorwills a-screeching down there in the dark of noonday. A cold shudder ran through natives and visitors alike, and every ear seemed strained in a kind of instinctive, unconscious listening. Armitage, now that he had actually come upon the horror and its monstrous work, trembled with the responsibility he felt to be his. Night would soon fall, and it was then that the mountainous blasphemy lumbered upon its eldritch course. The old librarian rehearsed the formula he had memorized, and clutched the paper containing the alternative one he had not memorized. He saw that his electric flashlight was in working order. Rice beside him took from a suitcase a metal sprayer of the sort used in combating insects, whilst Morgan uncased the big game rifle on which he relied, despite his colleagues' warnings that no material weapon would be of help. Armitage, having read the hideous diary, knew painfully well what kind of a manifestation to expect, but he did not add to the fright of the Dunwich people by giving any hints or clues. He hoped that it might be conquered without any revelation to the world of the monstrous thing it had escaped. As the shadows gathered, the natives commenced to disperse homeward, anxious to bar themselves indoors 
Despite the present evidence that all human locks and bolts were useless before a force that could bend trees and crush houses when it chose. They shook their heads at the visitor's plan to stand guard at the fry ruins near the glen, and as they left, had little expectancy of ever seeing the watchers again. Just picture it, Mr. Black. There were rumblings under the hills that night, and the whippoorwills piped threateningly. Once in a while, a wind sweeping up out of Cold Spring Glen would bring a touch of ineffable fetter the heavy night air, such a fetter as all three of the watchers had smelled once before, when they stood above a dying thing that had passed for fifteen years and a half as a human being. But the looked-for terror did not appear. Whatever was down there in the glen was biding its time, and Armitage told his colleagues it would be suicidal to try to attack it in the dark. Morning came wanly, and the night sounds ceased. It was a gray, bleak day, with now and then a drizzle of rain, and heavier and heavier clouds seemed to be piling themselves up beyond the hills to the northwest. The men from Arkham were undecided what to do. Seeking shelter from the increasing rainfall beneath one of the few undestroyed Fry outbuildings, they debated the wisdom of waiting or of taking the aggressive and going down into the glen in quest of their nameless, monstrous quarry. The downpour waxed in heaviness, and rather like the weather here tonight, distant peals of thunder sounded from far horizons. Sheet lightning shimmered, and then a forky bolt flashed near at hand, as if descending into the accursed glen itself. The sky grew very dark and the watchers hoped that the storm would prove a short, sharp one, followed by clear weather. No such luck. It was still gruesomely dark when, not much over an hour later, a confused babel of voices sounded down the road. Another moment brought to view a frightened group of more than a dozen individuals, running, shouting, and even whimpering hysterically. Someone in the lead began sobbing out words, and the Arkham visitors started violently when those words developed a coherent form. Oh my god! My god! It's going again! And this time by day! It's out! It's out of moving this very minute! And only the Lord knows when it'll be on us all! Tell him! Tell him, Earl! An hour ago, Zeb Waitley here heard the phone ringing, and it was Mrs. Corey that lives down by the junction. She says the hired boy Luther was out driving in the cows from the storm after the big bolt when he see all the trees bending at the mouth of the glen, opposite side of this, and smelt the same awful smell like he smelt when he found the big tracks last Monday morning. And she says he says there was a swishing lapping sound, more than what the bending trees and bushes could make. And all of a sudden, the trees along the road began to get pushed one side, and there was an awful stomping and splashing in the mud. But mind you, Luther, he didn't see nothing at all, only the bending trees and underbrush. But, but that ain't the trouble now. That was only the start. Zeb here was calling folks up, and everybody was listening in when a call from Seth Bishop's cut in. His housekeeper, Sally, was carrying on fits of kill. She'd just seen the trees bending beside the road and says there was kind of a mushy sound, like an elephant puffing and treading, heading for the house. And the dogs were all barking and whining awful. 
and, and then she let out a terrible yell and says the shed down the road had just caved in like the storm had blown it over. Only the wind wasn't strong enough to do that. Everybody was listening, and we could hear lots of folks on the wire gasping. Then Sally says the front yard picket fence had just crumbled up, though there was no sign of what done it. Then everybody on the line could hear Chauncey and old Seth Bishop yelling too, and Sally was shrieking out that something heavy had struck the house. Not lightning or nothing, but something heavy against the front that kept launching itself again and again, though you couldn't see nothing out the front windows. And then, and then... Take your time. And then, Sally, she yelled out, Oh, help! The house is caving in. And on the wire, we could hear a terrible crashing and screaming, just like when Elmer Fry's place was took, only worse. That's all. Not a sound nor squeak over the phone after that. Just still like. We that heard it got out Fords and wagons and rounded up as many able-bodied folks as we could get at Corey's place and came up here to see what you thought best to do, Dr. Armitage. We must follow it. Christ on his throne, no. I believe there's a chance of putting it out of business. You know that those Waitleys were wizards? Well, this thing is a thing of wizardry and must be put down by the same means. What? I've seen Wilbur Waitley's diary and read some of the strange old books he used to read. And I think I know the right kind of spell to recite to make the thing fade away. Of course, one can't be sure, but we can always take a chance. It's invisible. I knew it would be. But there's a powder in this long-distance sprayer that might make it show up for a second. Later on, we'll try it. What? Oh, it's a frightful thing to have alive. But it isn't as bad as what Wilbur would have let in if he'd lived longer. You'll never know what the world has escaped. Now, we've only this one thing to fight, and it can't multiply. It can, though, do a lot of harm. So we mustn't hesitate to rid the community of it. Mm-hmm. 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 All right, okay. All right. We must follow it. And the way to begin is to go to the place that has just been wrecked. Let somebody lead the way. I don't know your roads very well, but I have an idea there might be a shorter cut across lots. How about it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. The group shuffled about a moment, and then Earl Sawyer spoke softly pointing with a grimy finger through the steadily lessening rain. Armitage, with Rice and Morgan, started to walk in the direction indicated, and most of the natives followed slowly. The sky was growing lighter, and there were signs that the storm had worn itself away. Courage and confidence were mounting, though the twilight of the almost perpendicular wooded hill which lay toward the end of their shortcut and among whose fantastic ancient trees they had to scramble as if up a ladder, put these qualities to a severe test. Another round, gentlemen? Aye. Mm-hmm. Under normal circumstances, I'd say I'd had enough. Well, I did say you might not want to know, Mr. Block. More fool me. At length, the group emerged on a muddy road to find the sun coming out. They were a little beyond the Seth Bishop place, but bent trees and hideously unmistakable tracks showed what had passed by. Only a few moments were consumed in surveying the ruins just around the bend. It was the Fry incident all over again, and nothing dead or living was found in either of the collapsed shells, which had been the Bishop house and barn. No one cared to remain there amidst the stench and tarry stickiness but all turned instinctively to the line of horrible prints 
leading on toward the wrecked Waitley farmhouse and the altar-crowned slopes of Sentinel Hill. As the group passed the side of Wilbur Waitley's abode, they shuddered visibly and seemed again to mix hesitancy with their zeal. It was no joke tracking down something as big as a house that one could not see, but that had all the vicious malevolence of a demon. Opposite the base of Sentinel Hill, the tracks left the road, and there was a fresh bending and matting visible along the broad swath marking the monster's former route to and from the summit. Armitage produced a pocket telescope of considerable power and scanned the steep green side of the hill. Then he handed the instrument to Morgan, whose sight was keener. After a moment of gazing, Morgan cried out sharply, passing the glass to Earl Sawyer and indicating a certain spot on the slope with his finger. Sawyer fumbled a while, but eventually focused the lenses with Armitage's aid. When he did so, his cry was less restrained than Morgan's had been. Then the germ of panic seemed to spread among the seekers. It was one thing to chase the nameless entity, but quite another to find it. Spells might be all right, but suppose they weren't. Can you imagine that, Mr. Block? Voices began questioning Armitage about what he knew of the thing, and no reply seemed quite to satisfy. In the end, the three men from Markham, old, white-bearded Dr. Armitage, stocky, iron-gray Professor Rice, and lean, youngish Dr. Morgan, ascended the mountain alone. After much patient instruction regarding its focusing and use, they left the telescope with the frightened group that remained in the road. And as they climbed, they were watched closely by those among whom the glass was passed around. It was hard going, and Armitage had to be helped more than once. High above the toiling group, the great swath trembled as its hellish maker repassed with snail-like deliberateness. Then it was obvious that the pursuers were gaining. Curtis Waitley was holding the telescope when the Arkham party detoured radically from the swath. He told the crowd that the men were evidently trying to get to a subordinate peak which overlooked the swath at a point considerably ahead of where the shrubbery was now bending. This, indeed, proved to be true, and the party was seen to gain the minor elevation only a short time after the invisible blasphemy had passed it. Then Wesley Corey, who had taken the glass, cried out that Armitage was adjusting the sprayer which Rice held, and that something must be about to happen. The crowd stirred uneasily, recalling that this sprayer was expected to give the unseen horror a moment of visibility. Two or three of them shut their eyes, but Curtis Waitley snatched back the telescope and strained his vision to the utmost. He saw that Rice, from the party's point of vantage above and behind the entity, had an excellent chance of spreading the potent powder with marvelous effect. Those without the telescope saw only an instant's flash of gray cloud, a cloud about the size of a moderately large building near the top of the mountain. Curtis, who had held the instrument, dropped it with a piercing shriek into the ankle-deep mud of the road. He reeled and would have crumpled to the ground had not two or three others seized and steadied him. All he could do was moan, Oh, great God! There was a pandemonium of questioning, and only Henry Wheeler thought to rescue the fallen telescope and wipe it clean of mud. Curtis was past all coherence, 
and even isolated replies were almost too much for him. The things they say he muttered. Bigger than a barn, all made of squirming ropes, shaped like a hen's egg, bigger than anything, with dozens of legs like hogsheads that half shut up when they step. Nothing solid about it, all like jelly, and made of separate wriggling ropes pushed close together. Great bulging eyes all over it, ten or twenty mouths or trunks sticking out all along the sides, biggest stovepipes, and all tossing and opening and shutting. All gray with blue or purple rings. And that half face on top. Jesus. This final memory, whatever it was, proved too much for poor Curtis, and he collapsed completely before he could say more. Fred Farr and Will Hutchins carried him to the roadside and laid him on the damp grass. Henry Wheeler, trembling, turned the rescued telescope on the mountain to see what he might. Through the lenses were discernible three tiny figures, apparently running toward the summit as fast as the steep incline allowed. Only these, nothing more. Then everyone noticed a strangely unseasonable noise in the deep valley behind and even in the underbrush of Sentinel Hill itself. It was the piping of unnumbered whippoorwills, and in their shrill chorus there seemed to lurk a note of tense and evil expectancy. Earl Sawyer now took the telescope and reported the three figures as standing on the topmost ridge, virtually level with the alder stone, but at a considerable distance from it. One figure, he said, seemed to be raising its hands above its head at rhythmic intervals, and as Sawyer mentioned the circumstance, the crowd seemed to hear a faint, half-musical sound from the distance, as if a loud chant were accompanying the gestures. The weird silhouette on that remote peak must have been a spectacle of infinite grotesqueness and impressiveness, but no observer was in a mood for aesthetic appreciation. "'I guess he's saying the spell,' whispered Wheeler as he snatched back the telescope. The whippoorwills were piping wildly, and in a singularly curious irregular rhythm, quite unlike that of the visible ritual. Suddenly, the sunshine seemed to lessen without the intervention of any discernible cloud. It was a very peculiar phenomenon, and was plainly marked by all. A rumbling sound seemed brewing beneath the hills, mixed strangely with a concordant rumbling which clearly came from the sky. Lightning flashed aloft, and the wandering crowd looked in vain for the portents of storm. The chanting of the men from Arkham now became unmistakable, and Wheeler saw through the glass that they were all raising their arms in the rhythmic incantation. The change in the quality of the daylight increased, and the crowd gazed about the horizon in wonder a purplish darkness, born of nothing more than a spectral deepening of the sky's blue, pressed down upon the rumbling hills. Then the lightning flashed again, somewhat brighter than before, and the crowd fancied that it had showed a certain mistiness around the altar stone on the distant height. No one, however, had been using the telescope at that instant. The whippoorwills continued their irregular pulsation, and the natives of Dunwich braced themselves tensely against some imponderable menace with which the atmosphere seemed surcharged. Without warning came those deep, cracked, raucous vocal sounds which will 
never leave the memory of the stricken group who heard them. Not from any human throat were they born, for the organs of man can yield no such acoustic perversions. <laughs> Rather would one have said they came from the pit itself, had not their source been so unmistakably the altarstone on the peak. It is almost erroneous to call them sounds at all, since so much of their ghastly timbre spoke to dim seats of consciousness and terror far subtler than the ear. Yet one must do so, since their form was indisputably, though vaguely, that of half-articulate words. They were loud, loud as the rumblings and the thunder above which they echoed, yet did they come from no visible being, and because imagination might suggest a conjectural source in the world of non-visible beings, the huddled crowd at the mountain's base huddled still closer, and winced as if in expectation of a below. I heard something that night. Better to forget, methinks. Just imagine it. That was all. The pallid group in the road, still reeling at the indisputably English syllables that had poured thickly and thunderously down from the frantic vacancy beside that shocking altar stone, were never to hear such syllables again. Instead, they jumped violently at the terrific report which seemed to rend the hills, the deafening, cataclysmic peal whose source, be it inner earth or sky, no hearer was ever able to place. A single lightning bolt shot from the purple zenith to the altar stone, and a great tidal wave of viewless force and indescribable stench swept down from the hill to all the countryside. Trees, grass, and underbrush were whipped into a fury, and the frightened crowd at the mountain's base, weakened by the lethal fetter that seemed about to asphyxiate them, were almost hurled off their feet. Dogs howled from the distance. Green grass and foliage wielded to a curious sickly yellow-gray, and over field and forest were scattered the bodies of dead whippoorwills. The stench left quickly, but the vegetation never came right again. To this day there is something queer and unholy about the growths on and around that fearsome hill. Curtis Wakeley was only just regaining consciousness when the Arkham men came slowly down the mountain and the beams of a sunlight once more brilliant and untainted. They were grave and quiet and seemed shaken by memories and reflections even more terrible than those which had reduced the group of natives to a state of cowed quivering. In reply to a jumble of questions, they only shook their heads and reaffirmed one vital fact. The thing is gone forever, Armitage said. It has been split up into what it was originally made of, and can never exist again. It was an impossibility in a normal world. Only the least fraction was really matter, 
in any sense we know. It was like its father, and most of it has gone back to him in some vague realm or dimension outside our material universe, some vague abyss out of which only the most accursed rites of human blasphemy could ever have called him for a moment on the hills. There was a brief silence, and in that pause the scattered senses of poor Curtis Whiteley began to knit back into a sort of continuity, so that he put his hands to his head with a moan. Memory seemed to pick itself up where it had left off, and the horror of the sight that had prostrated him burst in upon him again. Oh my God, that half-face, that half-face on top of it, that face with the red eyes and crinkly albino hair, and no chin. It was an octopus, centipede, spider kind of thing, but there was a half-shaped man's face on top of it, and it looked like Wizard Waitley's, only it was yards and yards across. Then Joe Osborne questioned the Arkham men anew. George, what was it anyhow, and however did young Wizard Waitley call it out of the air? Armitage chose his words very carefully. It was, well, it was mostly a kind of force that doesn't belong in our part of space. A kind of force that acts and grows and shapes itself by other laws than those of our sort of nature. We have no business calling in such things from outside, and only very wicked people and very wicked cults ever try to. There was some of it in Wilbur Waitley himself, enough to make a devil and a precocious monster of him, and to make his passing out a pretty terrible sight. I'm going to burn his accursed diary, and if you folks are wise, you'll dynamite that altar stone up there, and pull down all the rings of standing stones on the other hills. Things like that brought down the beings those Waitleys were so fond of the beings they were going to let in tangibly to wipe out the human race and drag the earth off to some nameless place for some nameless purpose. But as to this thing we've just sent back, the Waitleys raised it for a terrible part in the doings that were to come. It grew fast and big, from the same reason that Wilbur grew fast and big. But it beat him, because it had a greater share of the outsideness in it. You needn't ask how Wilbur called it out of the air— he didn't call it out. It was his twin brother, but it looked more like the father than he did. Huh. Those Whateleys, what customers they would have made. I think you might have had a touch too much to drink, sir. <laughs> I happen to agree with you, bartender. Will you be staying for just the one night then, sir?